Hear the word of our Lord from the epistle of St. James, the fourth chapter, beginning in the first verse. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight in quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the word of our Lord again from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in the ninth verse. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the course of our Evaluating Modern Theology series, I imagine at least one person listening has said to themselves what they wish they could say to me. Well, Pastor, you're right. This Tillich guy is bad and all, but his side won. After all, there's liberal churches everywhere. Roman Catholicism looks and acts like the biggest liberal Protestant denomination. There's that flag everywhere that we all know, and those slogans on the front of Methodist churches that are completely and entirely worldly. And even the conservative churches out there are 
talking about how just important DEI is and all of this other stuff. The vast majority of churches out there are worldly. And I don't mean worldly in a light sense, like having business savvy or knowing how to deal with people in the world when evangelizing to them what piques their interest when trying to invite them to the church. No, what I mean is the vast majority of churches proclaiming to be Christian in the world today, all of the denominational superstructures, all of their leadership, they are incredibly in love with the world. It has gone beyond St. James's warning that friendship with the world is enmity with death. It has gone beyond St. John's warning in 1 John to not love the world. To the contrary, we're looking at something far, far worse, to the level of rank, ugly apostasy through syncretism with worldly morality. It is the importation of a foreign religion mixed in with true Christianity. And it does not matter how conservative your denomination is, chances are it is fully tainted by this. Even the Missouri Synod, even Roman Catholicism, even Eastern Orthodoxy. Just because somebody looks good on paper, just because they present as being very traditional, does not mean that they have escaped complete subversion. Now, the devil doesn't need you bowing down to him in order to have you serve him. Oftentimes, he is more than happy to make sure a church just doesn't stand out, isn't willing to offend worldly sensibilities or anything like that. He is perfectly fine with people being Christians if they are cowering in the corner and being of no consequence. All he has to do is play the waiting game. As the world teaches your children in their schools to hate their heritage, hate their church, and through culture, love, sin, and your aging churches that refused to do evangelism for decades and would not lift a finger to keep the kids in their hometown are going to be extinguished very soon, within 10 or 20 years, right? Meanwhile, the leaders are so scared of being condemned by the world that they are actively doing that which harms these churches. They are not re-evangelizing lost places. Instead, they are putting all their efforts on foreign missions because they think the culture here is lost. They just won't say it. And, you know, people listen over 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 miles away. So really, it's easy to see how they would take the path of least resistance, never make any waves in the culture, never say anything that makes people feel bad. Besides, you don't want to give up that tax-exempt status, right? And, uh, you know, you just go out and you show the sheep, hey, look, we don't care a whit for you. Don't notice that. Look at our fruit halfway across the world. It does indeed look like Tillich one.
Tillich and all the liberal Christian denominations out there seem to have gotten their victory of getting the church to get with the times, and for those that would not, effectively neutering them through pressures from the world and getting them so scared, so lazy, so impotent that our culture just steams on full bore right ahead. Anybody that raises their voice in the churches, any well-meaning pastor that says, hey, this is not right, is liable to be fired. Or in our neo-sacerdotalist ways of thinking, he is going to be punished by the ministerium around him. Because how dare you defy the mini-pope? Now, I know there are many young men that are looking at this and they're saying, I want to be traditional. I want to go to Eastern Orthodoxy because they have smells and bells and they haven't changed according to themselves for over 1,500 years, blah, blah, blah. No, listen, Eastern Orthodoxy has always been Cesaro-Papist in their outlook. They have always loved whoever is sitting on the throne. It has been a problem for them just as much as it has been for us, us Lutherans, or the Calvinists, or the Roman Catholics, or the Presbyterians, or the Arminians, the Methodists, or the Baptists. There will always be a section of your church that wants to love the world. Now, what is the biblical prescription for this? What could have prevented this state of affairs? Well, St. Paul says, expel the evil one from among you. That includes our perverts, our grifters, our swindlers, our false teachers and false prophets, and every wicked man that should ever dare to put on a clerical collar and get behind that pulpit. There should have been vicious excising of every subversive element in our churches. But we didn't do that, did we? Even when we pretended to do it, like you see with Seminex, a lot of those pastors that were taught by the higher criticism professors just stuck around in the LCMS <laughs> and they got their way, didn't they? Oh yes, we can pretend to do that, and every now and then you'll get some high-profile guy out there uh, caught saying some very unbiblical things in a biblical denomination, but we didn't do what we had to do. We didn't have power to do so, honestly. We don't have the resources nor the willingness to go through every single sermon, every single pastor, every single Bible study he ever wrote, and correct all of this. We live in a subversive's paradise, where anybody that wants to go out and make an impact on his churches can slowly but surely modify them, and they won't receive much pushback. And from the laity side of things, well, listen, there is an inverse from Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi means the way we worship is the way we believe. What happens on Sunday morning is going to reflect the actual faith of the people in the churches. But there's an inverse of that that must be kept in mind. The way we sin is the way we pervert. 
St. James says in James chapter 2, I will show you my faith by my works. If you do not have good works, you are probably not very strong in what you believe. And if you are actively in sin, chances are what you believe is going to be garbage. We see that with Paul Tillich and we clap our hands like idiot seals. Bark, 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 bark. Going, ah, yes, this man with garbage theology also led a garbage sinful life. But how's your church doing, pastor, when 30, 35%, 50%, maybe all of the young people in your congregation are open fornicators? We have seen the numbers. Most Christians have no problem with fornication or such a weak constitution that they cannot avoid fornicating for one reason or another. And when you have so many conservative churches just full of this, how good or bad do you think their faith is going to be? And if you have a bunch of these people that do not want to be condemned for their sexual sins, for their monetary sins, for the way they live their lives, when those people come into a place of power in the churches, how good do you think those churches are going to stay theologically? See, ever since the sexual revolution in the United States and the influences of Reinhold Niebuhr, Karl Barth, Paul Tillich, Moltmann, and Boltmann, and other quote-unquote theologians from the left side, conservative denominations have wrestled with these questions. We have a sinful culture that is teaching our children to engage in sin constantly. And our older people, well, they are listening to the news telling them to invest this, take that, go do a reverse mortgage, don't leave a cent for your children, and we have all these financial sins going on. The culture around us and our countries demand that we bear false witness in all things or suffer terrible consequences, and the conservative churches had a decision to make. Do you kick these people out of your churches and threaten such a demographic crisis that your congregations have five or six people in them that actually care to do what God says and believe what he tells us? They were faced in these early days with those stakes. Either kick out all of these elements that the Bible tells you plainly to kick out, and set up techniques and structures to make sure that happens so your church pleases God, or redefine what it means to be a conservative Christian and do everything in your power to keep these people since the culture is telling them to leave. Guess which option they took? They decided to say, oh, well, we don't need to excommunicate them like the Bible says. We just need to preach law and gospel to bring them to repentance for that at every church service. Uh, even if they're not actually repenting, I can't judge their hearts. I know what they're doing, but mm, we can't really refuse them the Lord's table or anything like that. We really do need to just be nice. We need to teach people from the Baptist and evangelical side of things that God heals their boo-boos, that God is the great physician. And while that's true, it became so overemphasized. 
We have all these recovery ministries to make you feel better about what you were doing without ever telling you that you did something sinful. We decided to be a kinder, gentler, softer church to present as accepting to the world so that they would come in and hopefully, at the very least, believe in Jesus or something. We don't know exactly how this goes about changing their lives or bringing them closer to God in sanctification. St. James says, draw near to God and he shall draw near to you. But we don't really want them to do that too, too much, because that might make people feel really bad. That might be telling them to repent. Um, you know what we're going to do? We're going to tell people wisdom. Five ways that the Bible tells you how to pad your IRA account. Six different ways to make your marriage stronger. Maybe we can encourage them to live less sinful lives if we just teach them how to uh, enjoy some prosperity here on earth. After all, that's what the world really wants, right? We can preach wisdom, preach, have a happy life, live your best life now, as the megachurches like to say. For a whole lot of Christian denominations today, the only difference between them and, say, the Episcopalians is that they don't have a woman investments uh, pretending to consecrate the elements by the altar. And our homiletics are no different from theirs, except, you know, we'll talk about how sin is bad without getting too, too much into the details, or else some people are going to get mad and leave. Don't leave my church. Don't leave us. <laughs> That's our attitude. No wonder it appears that Mr. Tillich and his friends all won in getting the church to get with the times. We've been on the back foot now for 80 years. And even the most conservative denominations, the most rabidly biblical ones, at least biblical presenting, even they are redefining things to present as conservative while actually being moderate or left. Take the fundamentalist Baptists, for instance. Oh, they know that their attendance is going to decline if they start teaching people to stop sinning and start repenting for their sins. So instead, they make up some really weird mental gymnastics to claim that a doctrine of repentance is actually heresy. And a drunk man who drinks himself stupid all day, every day, can still be a wonderfully consecrated believer Headed for heaven because all you really have to do is know about the gospel and accept it. That's a quite a redefining. And they can jump up and down and scream at their pulpits all they want. It's not biblical. And it's not conservative in the slightest. But it does keep the hypocrites sitting their butts down in your pews feeling like good people in spite of their lives absolutely wretchedly full of sin. The church failed to condemn sin. She failed to do evangelism. She failed to stand up to the world and say no more. But she was happy 
to do all these things if it was redefined and remixed in such a fashion to not have to do hard things like see your church numbers shrink. To see the coffers, the church budget, go down and to say we need to make some cuts. To say we are willing to suffer our churches getting covered in graffiti or for street evangelists to get beaten up, or to even get potentially sued by the federal government for saying something the federal government does not like. They were not willing to take those risks, because then your pastor doesn't have a salary. Then uh, you look pretty stupid to the world. Then you have people leaving your churches, and because we just forgot that you're supposed to trust in the God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, uh, we decided that our evangelism is actually a missions work. None of us have to actually go out and talk about Jesus. That's okay. We have some dudes that we're paying full time to do that in a country that we can't pronounce. Oh, we're not going to actually, you know, help the poor. Uh, heaven forbid we actually take care of people in our churches. Uh, we're going to have an outreach and a recovery ministry where we're going to make heroin addicts feel okay going on methadone for the rest of their life instead of helping them quit cold turkey. And you know, it feels good to condemn sins when they're not actually sins. So that what nobody is doing, everybody feels good about not doing it anymore. And we say, aha. That sin that I've condemned that the Bible does not actually call a sin and that nobody in the pews is actually doing, uh, we feel great for not doing it. Am I making sense? Let's recap. The sexual revolution and the cultural revolutions of the 20th century put conservative churches on the back foot. They were under assault. This meant a demographic cliff if they were going to continue operating in a biblical fashion. Being willing to stand as a witness for God's word, especially the gospel, and to make things known. They were worried that people were going to be leaving their churches. And by all means, that was a real threat. They were worried that their churches would be empty and disestablished if they actually went through and committed themselves to the biblical act of church discipline and actually said things that made the world uncomfortable. And meanwhile, while the culture gets hostile, they don't want to do evangelism because it gets harder. And instead of working harder and training up citizen missionaries for cities, locales, towns, everything, uh, instead they poured their focus into international missions. Then they learned, with the Crystal Cathedral and all sorts of guys with business degrees and marketing degrees, you can actually compete with the liberal churches uh, by hawking wisdom rather than the word of God, while Lutheran churches decided they were going to preach law and gospel and not the third use of the law, so no lives were actually changed. But in pews achieved, coffers full, everybody's doing great. Or so they think. Because now we have issues with uh, certain reprints of a large catechism. Now we have people out there saying that your church doesn't look the way I want it to racially, so I want it changed entirely. 
In fact, we should forsake how it's been for the past 150, 200 years to make me more comfortable. And by the way, we're going to throw out some, you know, some lawsuits in case you don't want to do that. And now during this time, there were heroes of the faith from all denominations that were standing boldly as witnesses against a lot of this stuff. Walter Martin, fantastic. Francis Schaeffer, he did his best. But those men died and nobody was trained to replace them. Nobody was bold enough to go against them. And so we are where we are today. There really aren't many heroes in conservative Christendom. All the big names out there are worldly men. Or they are intellectual fart sniffers pretending to be theologians who are doing their best to guess how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Their theology consists of, well, this guy said this, but that guy said that. Let me talk about how our denominations aren't actually that different, but you should go to mine for reasons. Sure, pal. Meanwhile, there is an old vanguard of real, small o, orthodox theologians who are trying to defend the faith and make waves. However, they are aging and dying, and who do you think they are going to be replaced with? They are going to be replaced with useless, smarty-pants individuals who don't want the church to actually do anything about her dire situation, and they will also be side-by-side uh, -side with rank subverters and heretics. That's where the church is today. She blinked. That's why conservative theologians and denominations failed. They blinked. They got worried about worldly things and they did not actually trust in God to continue being bold. And while they were buckling to the pressures from the world, from the devil, and even from their own flesh, they were listening to worldly advice and giving it to their kids. They weren't willing to tell parents, hey, you need to keep your kid here. You need to raise your kid to be here in this church, in this town, in this community. Don't send them off to college so they graduate with $80,000 of debt and no education. Come on, let's have a healthy community here. For all that they say about the church being a family, they sure love seeing that family get split apart because they have taken in and absorbed worldly assumptions about how somebody's life is supposed to go. They certainly weren't helping when it comes to helping these kids live moral lives, and once they're old enough, helping them, you know, get married and have families. Oh no, you just can't do that anymore. So yes, Things look bleak because the conservative denominations betrayed the laity. They engaged in spiritual child abuse, caring for the outsider more than those who are the church's children. We understand that. And it led to our current situation today where it seems no church is safe. And if you have a good church, rejoice, guard it, protect it with your life. As soon as your great pastor retires and your excellent board of elders is gone, it might be fed to the wolves. But with all that said, the future is so bright that I gotta wear shades. 
Remember, it's Holy Week right now. We are remembering everything our Lord Christ did for us. He suffered far worse isolation than we ever will. He had to deal with way more false teachers than the average man is ever going to interact with. And he died under persecution from them in order to save us from our sins. He rose again so that we could have eternal life in him. Because of that, you, his baptized believer, his child, are well taken care of. He will take care of you. We don't have to worry about a lot of these groups. For a good amount of them, there's just no saving them. They are completely off the walls. Their lampstand has been removed. It's not even a church. You can see that in their declining membership and their Sunday attendance that is absolutely abysmal. Good. They're going to die. There will be no ELCA by 2050, assuming they don't repent and massively turn things around. There will not be an Episcopalian church. There will not be any of these. They will be a teeny tiny thread of a few people attending maybe a few of these churches. They will no longer be your opponents. That is the result of Paul Tillich winning death of churches. Meanwhile, the conservative churches may very well repent. Good. I hope they do and start actually being biblically Christian denominations. If they don't, they are going to suffer the same fate as the Tillich churches. They're going to shrink. They're going to be disestablished. God will remove the lampstand from them. They won't be a church anymore. And meanwhile, you have that much more breathing room without these talking heads condemning you to keep doing real church. God says to you, O believer, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He means that. And though we can see Christendom shrinking and shrinking into what appears to be nothing, that just means that there will be fewer and fewer pretenders fighting for theological real estate in the church. It means freedom for us to operate as Orthodox Christians, as confessional Lutherans, and dare I say it, the pietists that have been doing fine this entire time. Lord knows, that means our future is bright. It hurts in the moment, but there is a victory for us, a crystallization of what being Christian really means, and those who are willing to actually put their face close up to that grindstone and get to work will see great fruit and great reward from our God. With an open road like that, I can't help but smile. It's going to be great, everybody. Just hold on tight. Until then, I'll see y'all in a couple weeks. I'm taking the week after Holy Week off. Catch you then. Amen and amen.